Today, we're looking at, we've been saying from week one that Romans 8 has been kind of designated by a lot of scholars and commentators as uh, the greatest chapter maybe in all the Bible. And so today, we're kind of at the greatest verse um, in the greatest chapter in the greatest letter, uh, perhaps, in the greatest book, the Bible, okay? So just zero in on the importance of uh, the verse that we are in today. A lot of you probably have this verse somewhere um, in, your, in your home or something, or uh, you've got it on a t-shirt or a tattooed on your skin or um, on a coffee mug or on a keychain or, um, I don't know, some picture or frame on a wall in your house. It may even be crocheted on a pillow. Or maybe it's on a doily. Is there still doilies around? Like when I grew up, I was like doilies in my grandmother's house. You remember those things? They're like dust collectors, I guess. Uh, but you've got it somewhere probably. Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 28. Here is what that verse says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. What an outstanding promise. Now I want to tell you this is more than just keep your chin up. This is more than just everything's going to be okay. This is more than just every cloud has a silver lining pep talk. Uh, This verse is a staggering promise for the follower of Jesus. We're going to break it down. We know, Paul says, we know. These are words of assurance. This is Take it to the bank. This is certainty language. We've been talking about that Romans 8, a lot of it has to do with this. We're kind of living in this in-between world, the already and the not yet, the now and the then, the temporary and the eternal. And Paul is saying that during this in-between, this already not yet, there are lots of things that we do not know. Paul just reminded us last week, again, you can go back and listen to the Romans 8 series, Paul just reminded us there are times that we do not know what to pray. Remember that? Last week. We don't even know what to pray, Paul says at times. But he says right here, we do know something. We do not know what tomorrow may bring. But in this verse, we know something. We live in this constant tension of what we know and what we do not know. But in this verse, Paul declares there is something that we can know. And we, what we know provides hope and confidence. And here's what Paul says we know. We know God is working. And this word working means actively working. That He is actively working on our behalf. He's not twiddling his thumbs. He's not sitting back passively. He's not waiting to see what's going to happen. That God is working. He is actively working. And what he is working is astonishing. He is actively working all things. All things. He is actively working all things. This is comprehensive, all-encompassing language. That He is working everything. So think about what that means. He's working the good. He's working the bad. He's working the sad. He's working suffering. He's working trials. He's working the unexplainable He's working, ready for it? He's working sin. He's working all things. He's working evil. He's working all things. That God is at work in all things. Now we we see this, you know, vividly illustrated in the cross, right? 
the, the most you know, traumatic moment, most unjust moment in all of human history. But in the cross, God was working. Of all the evil that was thrown at Jesus and the abuse and that He became sin, all of that wrapped up into a single moment of time that God was working all things. And then that next phrase, for good. God is at work in all things for good. Now, this does not say all things are good things. Evil's not a good thing. Suffering's not a good thing. A gang violence, as John was talking about, not a good thing. Pain is not a good thing. Sin is not a good thing. But His work is an expression of His goodness, and He is working all these things. The good, the bad, the ugly. He is working all of these things for our good. Now that word's important, good. He doesn't say God's working all things for your comfort. He doesn't say God's working all things so you can be happy. He's not saying God's working all things for your, your, for your blessing. He's not saying God's working all things for your pleasure, your satisfaction. He's working all things for good. Now there's some qualifiers in this verse, right? This promise is for those, one, who love God. So there's a relationship factor here, relationship with God through Christ. He also says he is working all things for those who are called according to his purpose. That means God has a divine purpose for those who have been called. And we're going to break that down in a minute. So this means life is not a random chaotic mess. Get the promise here. For those who are in Christ, God is working every single detail of your life for our good. Even when we can't see it, even when we can't understand it, even when we don't believe it, God is working every detail in life for our good. And let's be brutally honest, we don't always see it. We don't see it. We don't always understand it. As a matter of fact, according to your life situation, these words can seem hollow at times. Let me illustrate it for you. This story is about a lady named Natalie. It's a fictitious story, but a true story. It comes from the work of a counselor that I follow, and he says, like, this is not the actual story, but I have lived this story time and time and time again, and some of you will relate with it. Natalie married Ryan her college sweetheart just after college. They were madly in love. After a few years, they decided to increase their family. They struggled to conceive, finally discover Natalie is pregnant after five years of trying. They learn the baby is a girl. They decide to name her after Natalie's deceased grandmother. They read every what to expect book. They design the perfect nursery, complete with the large decorative initials above her crib. Everything is set, and they are over the moon excited. And their beautiful girl is stillborn, suffocated by her own umbilical cord. Their only memory of her is this kind of bluish, motionless body and the nagging guilt that they somehow failed to bring her safely into the world. Unable to deal with the pain, unable to deal with the trauma of a life event like this, like a lot of couples, their marriage deteriorates. They blame each other, and the instability and the guilt just t eventually tears them apart. Ryan finds a comforting escape in a coworker 
He soon begins, begins to have an affair. He convinces himself he's in love with his mistress at work. And when Natalie discovers their inappropriate text, he blames her. He leaves her and files for divorce. Within 18 months, Ryan is remarried, gets a promotion at work, and has a child with his new wife, a little baby girl. Natalie's dream being lived by another woman. And because she just wanted the relationship to be done, she walks away with very little in the divorce. She's forced to find a second job as a waitress on weekends just to make ends meet. Driving home late one night after working a double, she falls asleep at the wheel, has a wreck, totals her car, crushes two vertebrae in her lower back. She's forced to have surgeries that she cannot afford and will spend the rest of her life with limited mobility, chronic pain, and wearing the label, disabled. Well-intentioned friends try and comfort her by reminding her God works all things together for good. She doesn't feel that way. She feels abandoned, afraid, rejected, cursed, and angry. How is God working any of this for my good? And that's a fair question, isn't it? How do we know God is working all things together for good, especially when it does not even feel that way? She feels the opposite. And Paul gives us this beautiful foundation for Romans 8.28 in Romans 29, 8, 29, and 30. We love 28, 28. We love to post it. We love to put it everywhere. We love to quote it. We love to offer it kind of as cliche advice for people going through stuff. But if you miss 29 and 30, you miss everything that 28 is about. You miss the very foundation upon which 28 is built. And like so many verses that we Christians love to just rip out of their context and try to apply all here and there, Paul says, like, hold on, because what I'm going to tell you right now is why all things work together for good. As a matter of fact, he begins verse 29 with the word for, F-O-R, which is purpose language. It's here's why we know all things work together for good. Look what he says in 29. And again, buckle up, because he's going to say some stuff here that we've got to talk through and, and walk through. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, meaning Jesus was the one raised from the dead. He was the first one. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul defines the purpose he mentions in verse 28 which is to be conformed to the image of His Son, that God is working all things in our lives so that we might become more like Jesus. He is forming, molding, shaping us into the image of Christ, into Christ-likeness. Now, the bigger context, if you were here last week, and again, go back and listen. If you were here last week, the bigger context reminds us that the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf. And here is the primary aim of the Holy Spirit's intercession. That we might be conformed to the image of Jesus. To become more like Christ. 
So what's important here, and we can't miss this, Paul grounds the outcome of this process, which is being conformed to Christ. He grounds that not in our goodness, not in our abilities, not in our moral superiority. He grounds it in God's good and sovereign redemptive design from eternity past all the way into eternity future. Now, scholars refer to these five key words that Paul utilizes here as the golden chain. The golden chain, which means it's this unbreakable chain where every link is securely fastened to the other links. And it goes without saying here, just me reading the text, that Paul's choice of words here has sparked a lot of discussion, a lot of debate. As a matter of fact, let's get it out of the way, 2,000 years worth of debate from basically this, these verses and some others. And let me just lay this out. If Jesus doesn't come any time in the near future, 2,000 more years of debate and discussion, okay? We're not going to figure it out on this side of eternity. Now, before we drill down on these words, let me remind us, this is so important when talking through this text, Paul's not trying to be controversial. Paul's not trying to start a debate. Paul's not trying to turn us into a bunch of Calvinists. Some of you are like, isn't that like Calvin and Hobbes? It's like the only Calvin some of you know. He's not trying to do that. He's not even laying out like his full comprehensive view of salvation. What he is doing is he is instilling confidence and hope and assurance in us by reminding us that God will complete what he started. What he started before the foundation of the world. That we can trust that God is working all things for our good because in His sovereign plan, every single person in the golden chain, every single person that God foreknew is predestined. Every person who is predestined is called. Every person who is called is justified. Every person who is justified is glorified. There is no weak links in this chain from beginning to end. Now, to emphasize this point here, Paul highlights God's initiative in salvation. Everything starts with God. Everything ends with God. God is everything in between. From start to finish and everything in between, God is in absolute control. And that is the primary point of this beautiful and staggering promise for the child of God. So let me just tell you what these words mean. We'll let the text speak for itself. And I want to do it with this preface. We, if you've been at City Church for any length of time, you've heard me say this. We are unable to grasp fully the mystery, huge word, the mystery between God's absolute sovereignty and human responsibility. That's God is absolutely sovereign in control over everything, and humans have a responsibility. They're called to faith in Christ. And again, I've told you, there are people that line up on both ends of the spectrum on this, right? Your pastor lines up more on this end of things, on the God's sovereignty end of things. But there are people on all sides of this, and somehow there's a mystery where these two worlds meet in between. And so what we do is we stand in the flow of 2,000 years of church history in that regard, and we know that these are conversations worth having, and they are conversations that are valuable, and they are conversations that people will land in different places. 
But here are the five words, the five links in the golden chain. One, God foreknew. Paul says he foreknew. Now, from a human perspective, here's what that means. It means I know something in advance. I know that the sun will come up tomorrow. You know why I know that? Came up today, came up the day before, came up the day before. I know the sun's coming up tomorrow because Annie told me, right? Sun will come out tomorrow. The sun will come up tomorrow. We know some things in advance. Some of you are like, I know Alabama's going to win this week. It just happens every week. I'm a Cowboys fan. I know that no matter what we think, the Cowboys will not win the Super Bowl. I just know that. I know that in advance. No matter what our team looks like, we're not going to get there. We know some things in advance. That is from a human perspective. But from a God perspective, who is above time, above space, this word means something deeper. God does not just know in advance the sun's coming up. God makes the sun come up. He creates it. He makes it happen. He causes the sun to come up. This word know here is grounded in the word from the Old Testament that has to do with God's covenant love for His people. That He foreknew, Paul says, He foreknew us. Not just He foreknew something about us, but that He foreknows us. The word know means to set your affection on something. Remember when we went through the Exodus series, how we highlighted again and again how God's constantly using this language about His people, like, I just rescued you. It wasn't because of how awesome you were. It wasn't because you're the most powerful nation. As a matter of fact, you're a bunch of podunk hillbillies living in a foreign land. You're not the most powerful nation. The most powerful nation is the one that's over you. But God says, I just come in and rescue you. I set my affection on you. I set my love on you. It's covenant language. He caused it to happen. This word no carries with it the idea of loving. We could say God for loved us. Here's, here's what he tells the prophet uh, Jeremiah in chapter 1 verse 5. He's talking about the call of Jeremiah. He says, before I formed you in the womb. Before you were even formed in the womb, God says, I knew you. There's that word. I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nation. So this word is not just God knows something ahead of time. For uh, if, if, if it was that, it would be based on something we do, not based on what God does. The idea is that God initiates the process, which is where the second word comes in. God foreknew. God, here it is. Hold on, buckle up. We get scared of this word. God, take a deep breath. Breathe in. Through the nose. Out through the mouth. God predestined. There's that P word that we get so nervous around. Because here's what we, here's what we tend to think. That God arbitrarily just chooses some for heaven and others are just banished to hell. right? Kicking and screaming against their will. That God's picking a kickball team. Like, I'll take this one. This guy looks like a really powerful kicker, so I'll take him. You look like a weakling, so you stay on that team. That's how we picture this word. That God is predestined, like he's picking some type of 
kickball team or randomly, arbitrarily choosing this or that. So let me ease your mind for a second. Let me ease your mind by saying this plainly. Not one person is in hell who does not choose to be there. Not one. We are all sinners by nature. We all choose sin by nature. We all deserve hell because of our sins. The flip side of that coin, not one person is in heaven who does not want to be there. So with concepts like predestination, we just have to let the Scriptures speak for themselves, knowing there's a mystery that we can't figure out. We are finite human beings. And so along with this text and numerous others, they teach that God sets His affection on those that He calls, which is our third word. God called, or new, predestined, called. Now, there are two types of calls in Scripture. There's this general call that we see throughout Scripture for all people to repent and believe. Come to Jesus. That's the general call, right? For all sinners everywhere of all time. There is a more specific call in Scripture, some call it an effectual call, for those upon whom God sets His affection. Like, He called Israel out of Egypt. These are my people. I am rescuing them. I am bringing them out of Egypt. It was a specific call to a specific nation, specific time in history, a specific call as a second type of call. Let me illustrate it this way. Back when I used to travel a lot um, for work, um, they most, I flew about 90% of the time on Delta. So if you are flying on Delta, primarily from Huntsville, you're always going to go through Atlanta, right? And so you go to Atlanta, you catch from Atlanta to wherever you're going. And so unless, I mean, Huntsville's got like three direct flights to somewhere. So if you happen to be going to one of those cities. Uh, but if, a lot of times I'd be coming back late at night from my job. And there was one flight from Atlanta to Huntsville that would get me home. The last flight. And it was, at, I think it's at like 1030 or something at night. And if you miss that flight... You're either sleeping in the Atlanta airport, which is a fun experience when you're on a 20, when you're a 23 minute flight from home and having to sleep in the airport. Oh, man, that'll bring cursing to your mind whether you curse or not. And so here we are. I'm trying to get home one night. The flight I'm on is delayed. I used to say the D and Delta stood for delayed, particularly that late at night in and out of the Atlanta airport, which is constantly the busiest airport in the world, um, literally. And so um, I'm trying to get home. I land and I realize I've got like, I don't know, I've got like eight seconds. And I'm like, well, maybe my gate is two over. Well, you know, when you get and you can start checking your phone, I'm like, man, I'm two continents away um, from the gate. And so um, I had flown so much, I, uh, by that time I had a lot of status, so I was flying first class most of the time, so I'm just waiting at the door from the open. I'm saying to the flight attendant, like, tell them I'm on the way. Do not leave without me, okay? So if you have flown, you know there's different calls. There is, hey, everyone, we're about to board, get all your whatever ready, all that, right? Zone number one is welcome to board. 
You have zone number one on your ticket. You're able to board with all the zone one people, right? Zone two, zone three, zone four, whatever, all the way down. I have no status now, so I fly with the minions when I'm flying now. It's frustrating. But, and so they work their way through the zones. And then every once in a while on a flight, when there's one person that's late, can't be found, he's not at the gate, hasn't checked in, what do they do? They get on the intercom like, hey, this flight is about to take off. Devin Hudson, if you are in the terminal, get to the gate. We're about to leave without you. Has anybody ever been on the receiving end of this? I've been on the receiving end of this a few times. Get to the gate. Devin Hudson, it's not zone one, not zone two, not, all right, zone one through eight. Now you're welcome to aboard. It's Devin Hudson. We're about to shut the door. Well, I hear that. And I'm still a mile away. And so I sprinted right open, running through the airport up one of those seven-mile escalators that they have. I get about two-thirds of the way up, and I'm going faster. My feet, escalator, all those things happening at the same time. I just face plant on the escalator. I get up. There's blood running off of my head, my hands, everything. I don't even pause. I'm just like, keep on going, keep on going. I'm getting home tonight. And so I get to the gate, and, and uh, the, the, the smart aleck um, flight attendant's like, oh, I see you're a part of the Delta Fitness Plan show you Delta Fitness Plan. <laughs> and you're getting the evil eye from everybody as you get on. Like, we're waiting because of you. You realize that? Like, I just flew from L.A., right? I just landed three seconds ago. So be glad I made it. But the call goes from zone eight down to, Devin, the door's closing. Get on this flight. Specific call. Specific purpose, right? Specific person. God effectively calls, Scriptures say right here, those who have been predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Context is important here. Paul is talking about those who are in Christ. He's speaking words of assurance and hope. And he says, we know all things work together for good to those who have been called specifically by God. Here's a biblical illustration. Remember when Jesus raised Lazarus back from the dead? He goes to the tomb. And what does He say? If you're a dead person, what would have happened? The entire cemetery would have emptied out. Instead, he says, what? Lazarus, come forth. One person, it calls one name. Lazarus, come forth. Did you know if I had been living in biblical times, I could have walked into that cemetery and I'd been like, Lazarus, come forth. What would have happened? Nothing. I don't have the spiritual authority to call anyone back from the dead. I could have called and called and called. Nothing would have ever happened. It required the one who had the ability to bring the dead back to life to call, and Lazarus came forth. It was a specific call for Lazarus. It's pointless for me to call. I don't have the power to raise the dead. Spiritually speaking, Paul says we are dead in our sins, and we are brought to life by his specific call on our life. Now, again, there's a mystery element here that we can't grasp but we embrace it because it's what the Scriptures teach. Which leads us to that fourth word. Those that God calls, He what? Justifies. That word justified means to be made right with God through Christ. That He became righteousness for us. The links in the chain all go together. Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, 
He justified. God did not choose us because of our righteousness. The good news with that is He will not drop us because of our failures. He completes what He began, which leads us to that final word. God glorified. Those upon whom God sets His affection and calls and justifies will be glorified. It is a guarantee. This is the same group of people. The same group of people who were foreknown, who were predestined, who were called, who were justified, who were glorified. Even the verb tense that Paul uses here. This glorification happens when? It happens in the future. We haven't been glorified yet, but he uses a verb tense here as if it's already happened. That is guaranteed that the glorification will take place. The golden chain of redemption. God foreknew, God predestined, God called, God justified, God glorified. Salvation is of God from start to finish. Now, let's go back to the purpose behind Paul's weighty words here. He's not trying to stir up controversy. He's not trying to like, I need to send the pastor an email on this. That's fine if you want to email, right? Just say, here's what the scripture teaches. I'm somewhere on this map and you're probably in a different place and we're all okay with that, right? It's all a God thing. And so he's not trying to do that. Paul is trying to give us assurance He is giving us hope and confidence. Remember the theme of this entire section. Those who are in Christ can have confidence and hope in the in-between, in the brokenness. For those who are in Christ, for those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, we can know. We can know that whatever life throws our way, that no matter how agonizing or confusing or unexpected or troublesome, we can know that God is working all things for our good. And we can know this because God has been, God is, and God will continue to be in absolute control. He is the beginning. He is the end. He is everything in between. And His purposes will will not be thwarted because they're not dependent on us. They're not dependent on my response. They're not dependent on my cooperation. He is God from beginning to end. Working all things for our good and for His glory. Here's what that means for you. You are not a random thought. You're not a roll of the dice. God foreknew, predestined, called, justified. He glorified you in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that God did this before the foundation of the world. And that is bigger and more comforting and more assuring than keep your chin up. You're having a bad day. Everything's going to be okay. The sun will come out tomorrow. It's bigger than that. It's more comforting than that. So listen, amid the mystery of all this, Amid the mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, do not miss the beauty of the promise here. The assurance of this text. Romans 8.28 is glorious because of the golden chain of redemption. In verses 29 and 30. Now, let me say a couple of things. Then we'll wrap this up. Here's what we know from Scripture. Because I know, like, this makes your will spin a lot, right? Here's what we know from Scripture. Hear me clearly. Whoever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We know that. Scripture teaches that plainly, right? You call on Jesus, you will be saved. 
Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what do we do? We go tell everyone. We tell them. We tell them whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul, in in this text, Paul is in no way minimizing the importance of human response to the gospel. And so we invite everyone to believe on Jesus. Matter of fact, that's our mandate. Go tell them. Go tell them and baptize them. At the same time, here's what texts like this do. Texts like this know that we invite them knowing that salvation is ultimately the work of God. That truth takes the pressure off us. We do not have to talk anyone into being saved. There's a famous story of an uh, evangelist of a uh, bygone generation that, that preached throughout the world, and, and particularly in America and London, saw a lot of people come to Christ named D.L. Moody. And there's this guy walking down the sidewalk and this kind of skeptic of Moody. And then the guy was like, um, I don't remember the whole story, if he's like hammered or something. You know, it was obvious that um, he uh, wasn't having a good day and wasn't following Christ in that moment. And the guy says to Moody, isn't that one of your converts? And Moody said, yes, he is one of my converts. You know what he was saying? He's like, it's not a God convert. (laughs) That's one of mine. Um, So like we go tell everyone and it takes the pressure off me. Some of you, a few of you grew up in churches like I did. Where it's like, all right, let's sing stanza 37 of Just As I Am. Let's see if we can get one more down, right? Just As I Am. There's still some guy back there sweating. If we sing one more stanza, we can get him down, right? And so you grew up in those type of churches like I did. This takes the pressure off of that. This takes the pressure off of we have to try to somehow say it right, do it right. There's a lot of people that do not share their faith in Christ because they're afraid of what to say. That they're going to get it wrong. That they're not going to have the answers. You probably won't. That's not your call. Your call is to go tell them. Tell them. God does the work. God saves. God transforms hearts. We don't transform hearts. God transforms hearts. Here's what we also know. We also know that we all deserve hell because of our sin. That God does not send a single person to hell who does not choose to go there. And I even believe who does not choose to remain there by their own unbelief. That they would rather be in hell than be submitted to God's authority. Salvation is of God from beginning to end. We do not save ourselves. We do not keep ourselves saved. It is the undeserved, unearned, sheer grace of God. Now, we know this in our hearts, don't we? When we are praying, when we are giving thanks to God for our salvation, who do we thank? God. You don't ever get on your knees and say, God, thank you so much that I chose you. Thank you so much that I said the seven magical words that got me into heaven. We know who saves, don't we? I'll take it a step further. When you are on your knees pleading with God to save someone, who are you pleading to? You're pleading, God, save them. God, rescue them. God, redeem them. It is why we pray for God to save others. J.I. Packer, who is an unbelievable theologian, says this, On our feet we have arguments about this, but on our knees we all agree Salvation is of God. So, we embrace the mystery. We allow the tension. And we trust that God is bigger 
than my finite understanding. God is bigger than whatever theological system I want to put on his word. Most importantly, we live with the full confidence and assurance knowing whatever life throws at me. I can trust in this God who wrote my redemptive story even before time began. That God is my guarantor. What a guarantor is. Signs on the dotted line for you like I'm like, Older kids have gone to college and needed to take out a loan or whatever. Guess whose name had to go on the signature to say, if they can't pay it, somebody else is responsible. I was the guarantor, right? To have to guarantee. And God is our guarantor. Remember the story of Joseph? Taken, thrown in the well by his own brothers. Brothers eat hamburgers while Joseph's in the well, right? They're like, send that guy off to Egypt. We're not going to kill him. We're just going to sell him as a slave. Ends up, you know, things seem to look good for Joseph occasionally. Gets promoted at work, gets accused of rape, thrown in the slammer, right? Gets promoted in the slammer. What does that look like? And then it's like, interprets the dreams like, hey, remember me. God totally forgets him for three years. Interprets the dream of Pharaoh. You know this story, right? Finally gets put second in charge of Egypt uh, during this famine. And guess who shows up? Way back, first part of the story, brothers. Kneeling before Joseph. Not recognizing who he is. Story unfolds, right? He brings all the family to Egypt. The dad dies. Jacob dies. And what happened? The brothers freak out. Now's Joseph's time. Revenge is coming. Vengeance is here. And they say that to Joseph. We are freaked out of our minds. Because you're now in charge and we're not. What's going to happen? Joseph says, slow your roll. And here was Joseph's theology about God in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Did Joseph get that when he was being falsely accused of rape? No. Did Joseph get that when he's in the dungeon waiting for two random guys to speak his name to the Pharaoh? No. Did Joseph get that when his brothers showed up? No. But in the end, when Joseph looked back on his life, he said, I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. But what you meant for evil, God was working all things for good. Because that's the type of God that we serve. Everything works together for good for those who are in Christ because the God who has set His affection on us, who has predestined us to be like His Son, who has called us to Himself, who has justified us, will certainly glorify us. It is a guarantee that our final salvation and redemption will be accomplished no matter what life brings our way. The good, the bad, the confusing, the sinful, the hard, the unexplainable. God is for us. God is for Natalie in our story. God is for you. God is for me. And if this God who foreknew and predestined and called and justified and will glorify me is for me, guess what Paul says next? Who can stand against me? Man, don't miss the last section of Romans 8. And all who is for, if no one can stand against me, Paul says, if God is for me. Who shall separate me from the love of Christ, Paul says, if this is true? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us.
and we'll get there next week. In the meantime, move over doubt. God is for me. Move over fear. God is for me. Move over anxiety. Move over sickness. Move over disease. Move over shame. Move over guilt. Move over suffering. Move over trials. Move over struggles. Move over insecurity. Move over temptation. Move over sin. Move over brokenness. Because God is for me. Who can stand against me? Who can separate me from the love of Christ? And that's how we know God is working all things for our good, and for His glory.